Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Joe Genie, based in Washington, D.C. Great to have you with us. This is a podcast on international affairs. The Syrian refugee crisis is simultaneously one of the, the world's biggest stories and the most underreported. That's because much of the focus has been on the plight of refugees who have been fleeing for Europe, but that's just a small fraction of the total. Incredibly, we have by some accounts, as many as one in two Syrians have been displaced in the course of this conflict. You've got as many as seven or eight million uh, refugees internally displaced in the country, another four million perhaps displaced outside of the country, mostly in in Syria's immediate immediate neighbors, uh, Turkey, Jordan, and Lebanon. And uh, even by the standards of a war this, this violent and brutal, this is a shockingly high number. And today's guest argues that that's no accident, that in fact, the, uh, the parties are deliberately practicing population displacement as part of the prosecution of this war. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Dr. Benedetta Berthi. She's a TED Fellow, a research fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies, and a lecturer at Tel Aviv University. Um, uh, Dr. Berthi, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. So uh, you, you wrote an article in Foreign Affairs, and we're going to link to it. I think it's behind yep. a paywall, but uh, but we'll link to it anyway, and everyone should read it, um, in which you argued that the parties are deliberately doing this. So if you're, for example, the Assad regime, who's probably uh, probably the, the guiltiest party in terms of the sheer number of, of people, but all of the parties are kind of doing this, what benefit do you get from deliberately trying to displace, rather than just you know, th- this village is, is rising up against me, or this town is rising up, or this suburb is rising up against me, I'm just going to bomb them indiscriminately, deliberately trying to get people out of their homes and, 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 and on the run. What what benefit do you get from that? Right. Well, let's see, let's go back. If we want to understand how forced displacement, displacement has been used, I would say, as a key strategy in the context of the Syrian civil war, we have to go back to, to the beginning of the war. So we go back to 2011 and when the war from, when the revolution from political and peaceful becomes an internal conflict, becomes militarized and becomes an armed conflict. So I would argue that the Assad regime, um, not surprisingly, starts looking at what's happening in Syria as part of uh, an insurgency and starts to apply very key rules of counterinsurgency, which is you want to separate the rebel groups from the population. And there's many ways to do that. One way that he used from the very beginning, I would say, is repression. So arresting, repressing uh, the key activists and those involved in the revolution and also going after their families and their neighbors, neighbors and neighborhoods to try to intimidate. But when the revolution becomes military, then um, you start seeing that there is a key pattern and the pattern is to try to defeat the rebels whenever possible. But whenever not possible, the Syrian army... Um, Cuts attacks and cuts down the supply lines, destroys the infrastructure, and when he withdraws, he basically leaves the rebel with an ungovernable areas with uh, destroyed infrastructure and destroyed services. And on top of this, then you have the indiscriminate bombing against civilians, which basically puts the civilian population under rebel-controlled areas under an impossible predicament. And one of the options that many choose reasonably is that to leave. Now, if they leave abroad, then as far as Assad is concerned, that's, they're not a problem anymore. The alternative is many become displaced within um, non-rebel-held areas, so government-held areas. And once they're there, well, they become, of course, under the regime's uh, control. So from Assad's point of view, it makes sense. 
it's of course it's brutal of course it has a terrible price on the population but it makes sense in a weird way it's sort of uh i mean the classic case of insurgent versus counterinsurgent is the ins- the counterinsurgent is trying to prove that they can govern and the insurgent is trying to to cut their ability to demonstrate to the population that they can't govern but in this case it's almost it's almost like everybody's trying to demonstrate that the other side can't govern it's like oh the the rebels have this area we're going to make that area ungovernable by destroying it in effect and making the civilians dependent on us Absolutely. And on top of that, you can also see that in key rebel-held areas, it became uh, as brutal as, a, as an actual siege. In, of course, the, the Palestinian refugee camp inside Damascus, Yarmouk, has become one of the, the symbols of this, of the, car, of the camp being literally sieged and starved off uh, for months uh, by the regime preventing international system from going inside. And of course, their their their, strat- their their argument was that they were doing that because it was rebel controlled. So by by siege by laying siege and preventing humanitarian assistance or anything else from going inside, they were trying to starve off the revolution. But of course in the process they were also starving off civilians and creating an unbearable situation for the civilian population. And as the war continued, as you as you mentioned, the more it became the more it became bloody, the more it became prolonged, the more you start seeing uh, civilians targeted deliberately deliberately by virtually all sides. Although I would agree with you that just the sheer level of displacement has been um, coming predominantly from the Assad forces. So, so I'm curious how much of this is based on on sectarian or, or ethnic divisions. When you look at, for example, what the Kurds are doing, it's clear that they're trying to they're behaving kind of like it kind of reminds me of, of Croatia's tactics during during the Balkan Wars. They're clearly trying to carve out a territory and they're trying to uh, there's seems to be pretty good evidence that they are basically trying to make sure that the area that they control is indisputably Kurdish and evicting lots of people who aren't Kurds. How much of that is true for the Assad government as well? The government is is sort of uh, disproportionately rep- uh, composed of minority groups that are afraid of what will happen if, if a, a, a larger Sunni majority majoritarian government comes in, which is one of the reasons why they can't hold elections. How much of this is them trying to basically carve out a sort of Alawite and other minority group territory? And how much of it is is some of these other factors you're talking about? It's complicated because it's all these things together. And I would say when the revolution started, Assad was very clear in his in his view, and his view was this idea of the alliance of minority, was this idea that rallying um, Syria's minority with him and sort of argue if the opposition will have its way, if the opposition will win, then of course they will go after Syria's minority. That that was the branding. I'm not saying that's exactly what that that was reality, but that's how the the, the Assad regime packaged. Uh, the rebellion from from the very first days. And when you look at patterns of displacement, it's not exclusively sectarian, but unfortunately, the more the war continues, the more you do see also sectarian-based massacres um, coming from the Assad regime and its its, uh, Shabiha and its uh, paramilitary uh, defense forces. But unfortunately, as you mentioned, it would be... uh, it would be inaccurate to say that it only comes from that side, meaning that, again, the more the war continues, the more you see uh, targeting of civilians by virtually all parties and a tinge, more than a tinge of sectarianism coming also from the from the rebel side. And 
Uh, on the Kurdish question, it's very interesting because we have conflicting reports, but uh, it does seem that there's also some level of displacement that occurs within Kurdish-held areas. So at this point, you can, you can pretty confidently say that it does become an element of the war, unfortunately. Uh, now, I mean, a lot of the the proposed solutions, especially from from Western capitals, have have involved there being a political transition in Syria where Assad steps down and and you have democratic elections, which would be, be kind of a revolutionary result in the country. Um, one of the things that that you've written about is how armed groups will have. Uh, that they have a constituency, that they're not just, you know, for, for Hezbollah, for example, uh, you mentioned in your in your TED Talk, they don't just, it's not just a group of guys with guns and, and missiles imported from Iran and, and, and masks. They actually have a constituency. They have a charity wing. They have a political wing. Uh, they, they kind of operate, as, as the saying goes, like a state within a state. And a lot of the, the groups in Syria kind of have this as well. So, how do we, it seems like it's difficult to, when someone has a, a demographic constituency in this way, it's kind of difficult to just defeat them outright or to basically compel them through military action to to basically surrender at, at the ballot box or whatever. Uh, how do we, how does this end? How, how does it, um, how, like, yeah. How, how do we how do we integrate these groups like we have like we've seen in in Colombia, Northern Ireland, and in, in, in Lebanon to some extent? How how it seems impossible at this moment, but most of these groups are somehow going to have to be integrated into the various different rebel groups, the government, the army, the militias are going to have to be integrated into some sort of solution. How does one go about imagining that in Syria? Right. Well, it's if if we talk about it today, it does seem like a very difficult thing to imagine. But I agree that eventually um, the only way to move forward will be through a negotiated political transition. And after the negotiated political transition, there will be eventually some sort of program to integrate, disarm uh, militias and armed factions, although I guess that's very far down the line. So how do we go about it? I think that you've, you mentioned a really important part of the equation here, and that is that neither side, nor the rebels, nor the Assad regime are able, and I still believe that's true today, to obtain a crushing military victory on the battlefield. They both are in a mutually hurting stalemate. And they can both continue, I think, this conflict for a long time until they exhaust resources or human or financial or what have you. But fundamentally, there will come a time in which um, in which this sort of uh, mutually hurting stalemate will not be sustainable anymore. And likely, I think that will happen while the foreign backers will start to slowly back away from propping their, their, the, the, the different sides in the civil war. At that point, what, what will happen, I imagine, is, um, is some sort of negotiated transition. I don't see that happening with Assad remaining in power. I still think that that's unacceptable to virtually all the rebel groups that have constituency on the ground. But, um, but that is not that's easier said than done because, of course, removing Assad creates a very big, uh, could not, not a downright collapse, but a very big crisis within the, the, the Syrian state as we know it today. So we're not there yet, but eventually I, I foresee that this mutually hurting stalemate will lead the main parties to have to sit down and negotiate. There will be some sort of transitional body. Uh, I imagine that Assad will, will be ushered out in a way that allows 
the astrocyte to save face and after that you will have this transition process and then we will start thinking about reintegration and disarmament but it's very it's again it's easier said than done because when you look at the when you look at the sheer number and differences within the Syrian rebel groups then you can you can see that that's going to be a very difficult task yeah. uh, a key yeah. example yeah. is al-Nusra yeah exactly how, yeah how is al-Nusra going to fit into this process um, and I, we haven't mentioned ISIS up until now because uh, I, because rightly so, they're not considered part of the rebel groups. They're considered as doing their own thing. But whether we like it or not, they control roughly one third of the territory in Syria. So they're also going to be a massive hurdle and a massive spoiler in any sort of negotiated transition. Yeah, it's it strikes me that we're, I mean, especially after all the recent spate of attacks by ISIS, that there's been this renewed push against them. But it almost seems like they have to be this, it's like you have to settle the other issues first and come up with a political transition that everyone can be in favor of uh, before you deal with them in a way. Because uh, in a way, they're almost, it, it, the, the regional actors on the ground, everybody has their sort of historic rivalry or, or or group that they really want to take out so if you're if you're the the Turks you want you don't like ISIS but you want to t- you want to make sure the Kurds don't get independence and you want to take out the Assad regime first and you want to focus on that and the Saudis are the same way and and then the Assad regime doesn't want to go after them because they're focused on the other rebel groups so it's almost like you have to take out uh, you have to deal with with ISIS second after you deal with this political transition or 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 political settlement first that certainly, I mean, that certainly does make sense to me because I do see the rise of ISIS as the byproduct, not just of the post-2003 dysfunctional pr- process of state building in Iraq, but also I see the rise of this group as facilitated by this vacuum and this civil war that has engulfed Syria and by 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 the by 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 product de Levant. So I do think that it's impossible. Part of the problem in the strategy so far has been to want to um, differentiate and go after just the ISIS threat without recognizing the big link with the context. However, it's easier said than done because as you said, at this particular point in time, everybody agrees that ISIS is a menace and a threat and they want to go after him. But, but when it comes to deciding what sort of template, what sort of framework we should, we should pursue it as an international community to, to deal with the Syrian crisis, then, of course, as you mentioned, there is no agreement. And Russia will say today that it's important to create a negotiated transition and to have Assad stay in power for the transitional period because that will be a way to put aside differences and be able to create a strong coalition against ISIS. On the other side, if you, if you hear um, from a Turkish perspective, they would, argue, they would argue exactly the opposite. They would argue that getting, getting rid of Assad, making Assad step aside, is a sine qua non condition to finally be able to create a, a united coalition to go against ISIS. So either way, from, from both sides, there is, there, it's clear that this is still a very, uh, a very sticky point. And I would agree with you that un- unless there is an integration between the, 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 the security strategy with respect to ISIS and the broader conflict management, conflict resolution with respect to Syria, until we, 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 we think of them as, as part of a broader joint strategy, we won't really uh, achieve neither goal. 
So, uh, so I have I have two qu- two more questions. One about about refugees, and one about what what the final settlement might look like. Um, yeah. The, the the first uh, on the refugee point. I mean, one one of the points you make is that basically because displacement is a deliberate tactic in the war, you have this huge refugee crisis. What can while the war is continuing, what what more can the international community be doing that they're that they're not doing in order to help alleviate this? Especially since many of these people are in conflict zones or or are in territory that's held by regimes that are not or or, or entities that are not regarded as legitimate right so uh, there's a lot of international community quite frankly could be doing more because it's not i would argue doing enough to deal with the refugee crisis both at a regional level as well as if we think about internally displaced persons in syria the the basic one it's uh funding the both the the un appeal to deal with the regional refugee crisis is operating with about 40 percent less of its required uh budget and in terms of internally displaced persons the but the the budget cut is even bigger so in other words there's not enough money to deal with this emergency um secondly there's not enough support to the host countries being jordan lebanon turkey that are dealing with the vast majority of uh, the refugee crisis, because more than the 80% of Syrian refugees are in these three countries, that continues to be true today. And so more support to the host communities, more money. And the third element that I think is fairly unpopular these days, probably both in Europe and in the United States, is the issue of resettlement. Um, At this point, the, the, the sheer number of people that is being accommodated in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Turkey, is just reaching a ceiling. And the international community, by and large, both uh, EU countries, as well as the United States, as well as many of uh, Syria's regional uh, regional neighbors, have not uh, done their fair share, I would say, in terms of the number of people that they've welcomed and granted asylum to. And I think that's also very important because, again, as you mentioned, if you look at the long-term future of this trend, until the war continues, the number of internally displaced persons and refugees is going to continue to go up. And because the host societies have reached their limit, you, we will see more and more people seeking to uh, seeking shelter outside of the Middle East. So that's another big component. So that leads into the, the final question, which is, how this ends. And this is one of the things that I was interested in about your research and about the question of deliberate population displacement. Because it's getting more sectarianized as the war goes on, in some ways, Iraq and Syria kind of remind me a little bit of of the Balkans, where deliberate population displacement basically created these sort of identity-based units that ultimately became states as part of the Dayton Accords. Is it possible that we could see, as a result of this tactic, a partition of Syria and Iraq into maybe four state entities that are based on identity lines, which would then sort of remove the need, for example, to immediately get rid of, say, the Assad government, because the Assad government is no longer representing most of Syria, but only the constituencies that support it at this moment. Is that a way that this might... I mean, it's the opposite of what the most recent Vienna communique with all the parties uh, a couple weeks ago, the only thing they agreed on was that Syria's territorial integrity should be respected. But is that ultimately where this might go? Yeah, I mean, they, they agreed uh, They agreed on this principle, which is understandable, but de facto today, Syria's, there is no Syrian territorial integrity. There is no central Syrian government. Uh, Syria has become a 
series of different centers of powers that are competing or collaborating, depending on the areas. So th- there is there is a de facto breakdown of sovereignty in Syria. The question is, can it be reversed, and what sort of future will the country will the country uh, hold? Uh, in terms of partition, it's not completely out of the question, but I, I would. I would caution against using too much the idea of partition simply because when I look at the the um, distribution of resources, natural resources, and the distribution of population and the distribution of energy, uh, access to energy resources, again, um, it doesn't fall under very neat lines. It means that it's not so simple to just simply um, cut down the country into, let's say, four parts. And also, uh, Syria continues to be an heterogeneous country, even even with all this massive force displacement, which means in order to have this kind of neat partition, you will need future additional ethnic cleansing, which I surely don't don't wish to see for the country. And in terms of what, what type of countries could we have, well, we, it, we could see a situation in which there is a de facto a Kurdish autonomy in, the, autonomy in the north. We could see uh, alongside this Kurdish autonomy in the north a sort of Assad stronghold propped up by Hezbollah and Iran that uh, basically encompasses the the the, the north the north uh, the north the north uh, west Alawi um, Alawi stronghold and then the corridor going all the way down to Damascus. But then the other two parts of the country get incredibly tricky. On the one hand, there's ISIS, which certainly I don't think it's something the international community is willing to live with, and that will be the third mini-state under this idea. And the fourth one is um, a compilation of rebel groups fighting each other. So the fourth, the fourth, uh, the fourth element here is uh, very much prone to instability. So I'm not. I understand why there is a big reluctance to embracing this scenario, even though that's what we're heading towards, short of a strong international push to get to an agreement. Yeah, I would, I would say, yeah, hope, hopefully there's an agreement, but it, it does seem that the longer this goes on, the more likely that that might be where it ultimately goes. That is correct, yeah. Dr. Benedetta Berti, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can our listeners find you and your research on the internet? Let's say they can go on TED.com and they can see a snapshot of my work on armed groups and civil wars, or they can just Google my name and I'm sure lots of stuff will pop up. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. You can find the podcast on the web at joegenie.com slash podcast. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I, my name, dot com slash podcast. You can also subscribe in the iTunes store by searching for ambassadors at large and clicking the subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next time. Bye-bye.